Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Most Unlikely Heroes. I'm going to give you two options, an average 18-year-old from Scotland in 1342, or from America in 2011. Which one wins in a hand-to-hand combat? Well, studies show that this present generation is the most lethargic and incompetent generation ever. This is the future state of the church unless we hide ourselves once more in the all-powerful shadow of the Almighty. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The Most Unlikely Heroes. Sound like a good title? You ready for this one? God has a calling, has a commission, has a design for this generation. And here we are, Ellerslie. We have close to 100-some students on campus right now. What are you here for? Why are you here? What does God intend to do in and through you? Is it just that you would be stirred with the realities of Jesus Christ and then go and live as everyone else lives? There's no way that that is the purpose of Jesus Christ in your life. He has sought you out. He has singled you out. He is bringing truth to bear upon your soul so that you would be altered by it and that you would go into this world and turn it upside down. You have a job to do. And it's the job of the kingdom. And you have a responsibility. You have been entrusted much. You are responsible for much. However, this commission that comes with this epic background movie score with it is being brought to those who are literally the most unlikely to be heroic representations of the kingdom of God in this generation. I'm not just talking about you. I'm talking about our generation. This younger generation that is being raised up. We have literally been robbed of the 30 to 40-year-olds. Almost all have been swept away in the emergent movement. I mean, we literally have had an entire generation swallowed up. The parental generation at the helm of the church right now is limping along, struggling for strength and power. And we have not had a model. The younger generation that is now coming into that position of strength has not seen it. They have not beheld what the church of Jesus Christ is to look like. In fact, academically, spiritually, socially, emotionally, almost every, in every regard, we have been dealt a very weak hand. It's like we have a two in our hand, a three, maybe a five, and a seven. You know, I don't know how many cards you have in poker, but we're not looking good. Okay, so you can throw in, you know, maybe a nine or something in there. We're not looking good. We don't have anything to deal with, anything to bet on. We do not have strength. And yet, God smiles a wry smile and goes, just watch what I can do with weakness. So you may not feel very impressive. It's all right. You may not be very impressive. If the world was measuring you, if the church of Jesus Christ throughout the ages was measuring us, they might not be impressed. It's like, God, you've got to be kidding. You're going to use that? Yes, this is my way. I will use the weakest, I will use the dumbest, I will use the most unready generation. Okay, so the most unlikely heroes. If you happen to take offense to this, just know that this was not a study just done on you as an individual. (laughs) The most unready generation ever. This was uh, by a study, what's the guy's name, Mike or Mark Berline, Uh, Dan? Is it Mark or Mike? Do you remember? Mark. Mark Berline, a secular uh, guy, wrote a book uh, called uh, The Dumbest Generation. 
And he did a study. It's about a 400-page book. And Dan was feeding me all sorts of good information. I was saying, I need that information again for this message. Okay, so we are considered that 18 to 24-year-old range. And I know I'm saying we. I'm 40. Okay, so but I identify with that generation because we have a lion's share of Ellerslie students that hang out in that age range. Okay, the most unready generation ever. Not just unready for anything, but for battle. Literally, we are not equipped. And when he's studying military readiness, never, possibly ever in all of world history has there been a generation more unready for battle than ours. Isn't that an extraordinary statement? Just think about these things spiritually, because this is a secular guy that's doing an analysis on a culture. But I want you to realize that that physical readiness for physical battle applies to spiritual readiness for spiritual battle. 75% of an entire generation between 18 and 24 are ineligible to join the military. 75%. Can you say the word pathetic with me? Why? Well, there's a high level of obesity. This is embarrassing. Obesity. Unfit physically. Unable to perform the most basic military maneuvers. Uneducated. Wait a minute. Are you going to say we're uneducated? You can go to school and be uneducated. Isn't that an incredible realization? That you can go through school and they can pass you because they don't want you just lingering in the grade. And they'll keep moving you through the system and they'll stick out practically illiterate students all the time. They can find oatmeal in the grocery store because they recognize the oatmeal box, not because they can read oatmeal. Unlearned mentally, unable to pass the most basic academic tests of competence. We can't hear. Yet to be able to hear, I guess, to get into the military at some level. Lost acute hearing ability due to the volume of music. It's embarrassing. We are unfit to protect our lives, to protect our marriages, to protect our families, to protect our, our towns, protect our states, to protect our nations. We are unready for battle. So the dumbest generation ever. This is the book uh, that I was referring to. It's actually called The Dumbest Generation, or this is the the other option title for it, or Don't Trust Anyone Over 30. That's an attitude of an entire generation. You can't trust these guys. Those over 30, we have definitely seen some weaknesses in the older generation. There's no doubt about it. But I want you to know, those over 30 possibly know more than you do as those of you that are under 30. You may know more about uh, computer programming. However, they oftentimes know more about life. And we have disconnected ourselves from any knowledge fuel source that would give us an understanding of how life actually works. So look at this. It goes through, I think it's like six things I'll mention here. But six observations of why we are the dumbest generation ever. How do do you guys like being classified as that? Isn't that a fun title to wear? See, I'm trying to get you mad is what I'm trying to do. Don't accept that title. Don't sit around and allow that to be your title. Hit it back. Knowledge deficits. The least supply of common life, social, and cultural knowledge of any generation. This is my little statement that I add to it. Disconnect them from their devices and they die. See, as long as they have their computer, their laptop, their, you know, their PDA, whatever it is, they can make it through life. 
They can figure out directions. They can do their research. How do they do their research? Google. That's their research. And so as a result, you disconnect them from their devices, stick them in a, in a forest all by themselves, and you know, run away with the car. They die. They have no way of surviving. They do not know how to live outside of the system. They're bibliophobes, which isn't just a fear of the Bible. This is a fear of books. The highest disregard of books and reading of any generation. Now, look, there's my comment. Give them a book and they turn it into kindling. Number three, screen time. It's the greatest amount of time in front of a screen of any generation. I mean, you could say, well, previous generations didn't even have screens. You know, I don't know what it was. The 40s or 50s when television started coming out and they were watching television all the time because it was such a novelty, doesn't even compare to what we are doing in this generation. We are almost always in front of a screen, whether it's a computer screen or a television screen or a movie screen. Almost always. Or a cell phone screen. Whatever it is, we are addicted to the screen. And obviously, this is having some kind of effect upon us. Don't expect them to be involved in the rescue of this world, for they are completely lost in another one. Online learning skills, the least effective research skills which garner true information of any generation. Our generation does not know how to find true information. We know how to find information. We have the information superhighway. Oh yeah, we know how to find information. Is it true? Are you able to test and see if it's true? Do you have any filter of knowing if it's true? Well, it's the highest Google ranking. Let me tell you, the highest Google ranking is nearly inevitably wrong. Okay? It does not necessarily mean it is right. It just means more people are turning to it than something else. There are all sorts of top Google rankings in this world, but that does not mean that they are true. The motto for information gathering, the highest Google ranking rules. Wikipedia is the new Bible, and good bloggers are the oracles of the now. If you can write, this generation will submit to you, lay down their lives before you and say, train my mind how to think. It does not mean that you know how to live. It does not mean you have a scrap of actual real-world intelligence. You have not earned a medal through your life lived, and yet you can write, and you can impress people with your phraseology, and as a result, this generation will submit to you, and they will follow your lead. You can be 17 years old and not know a thing, but you can write. You can control the minds of a generation. Betrayal of mentors is another hallmark of this generation, of these 18 to 24-year-olds. They're the most apt to disbelieve, disregard, or betray teachers and mentors of any generation. Their commitments mean nothing, for they are loyal only to that which feels good to them in the moment. This better not describe you, by the way. If it does, you need to discard these behaviors. Because there is a loyalty that is needed of you. I know it's hard to be loyal to people that don't necessarily seem like they're living it either. But there are deep loyalties that need to be bred in your soul. And I'm not just saying to parents and, you know, leaders and church leaders and things like that. But if you grow up with this mentality, guess what? You'll be flaky with God. You'll be flaky with his word. Because what feels good to you in the moment? I guarantee you a good, hot gospel message may not feel good to your soul in the moment. Do you discard it? Are you going to betray your mentor, the word of God? This behavior is despicable. No more warriors. 
the generation least apt to produce warriors for cultural, moral, civic, and private good. The motto for exertion of soul, supply strength and passion only to the causes that best serve self's comfort and self's continued gratification. What gets you up off the couch? Self. If it's gonna, how's it going to help me? Is there anything in it for me? All right. I'll give a little energy to it. The moment that starts to turn and it starts to be for the benefit of someone else, hey, I'm done. I did my part. I'm sitting back down on the couch. What kind of warriors are those? A warrior is one who knows the value of a cause bigger than himself. That's what a warrior is. You don't just go out and fight for your own reputation. We, as Christians, fight for the glory of Jesus Christ. Something far bigger than self. In fact, to fight for it, you have to deny self. If you're fashioned after this model, Christianity is in the tank. Because everything that makes Christianity strong is being defied with this behavior. We can't accept it. So remember the title. I'm not trying to just discourage you. I'm saying the most unlikely heroes. So there's a positive spin on this. I do not accept this as the final declaration over the 18 to 24-year-old age range. And you shouldn't either if you just happen to be in that age range. It's fun when you're 40 and you can look at that age range and know that it's not talking about you. You're like, hey, this is talking about me. Get rid of this. This is a stigma. You were being deemed literally the dumbest generation ever. What are you going to do about it? Now, almost everything on that list I can relate to. I mean, I'm only, what, 16 years removed from the top end of that age range. How does this affect me? Well, everything that you guys are dealing with, I was dealing with it in, a, in a, maybe a lesser form. It's just a constant erosion in our culture. When I was going through school, I hated reading. Hated. I was a bibliophobe, okay, if you want to say it that way. Hated reading. The books I read were the books I had to read. And I hated those books. And the only book I actually liked was The Adventures of uh, Huckleberry Finn. It's like, okay, I like that book. But I didn't want to tell anyone I liked it. Okay? If a, and I literally, I read the Sporting News, Sports Page, Sports Illustrated. Those are the things I read. Because I was interested in them. But I wasn't interested in books. And my, uh, my, on my uh, scores when I was being tested, I was very low in English and very high in math. And what's interesting is when I was going through junior high, I was very, very good in English. That was, I was like better than anyone in my class. In fact, in spelling, I was like 16 levels higher than everyone else. And yet I was embarrassed by that. I didn't want to stand out academically, so I literally allowed a deficiency to enter in. Whereas like I would answer questions wrong to get students, and not really wrong. I mean, not just wrong, but really wrong to get students to laugh because I wanted to fit in. And as a result, my brain went south. It's like I capsized my intelligence. And when I was going through school, I learned how to study to give the right answers to get the right grade. That's all I cared about is getting the right grade. I didn't care about learning. Learning meant nothing to me. Because what you're doing, you're just putting up with school. I mean, who cares about school? You just want to get the grade so you can get into college. I don't want to learn in college. What I want is to get the grade so that I can get the job that pays well. I just want someone to take care of me. So what do I need to do? Well, you need to get a good grade here. What do I need to do to get a good grade here? You need to pass this test. What do I need to do to pass that test? You need to be able to answer these questions. Can someone give me a cheat sheet? Can someone give me cliff notes? How can we truncate this process and make it as easy for me as possible? Learning in the tank. 
As a result, we do not have shaped minds that know how to discern, that know how to think critically. As a result, we're gullible for everything. We have not been trained as a generation. Okay? And this is the way I was. Now, what's ironic is when I was about 18 or 19, let's say I'm 19 at this time, I left school to go uh, on the mission field for a short stretch, and I remember having the realization, I mean, I was getting the best grades in, I was a biology, chemistry, double major in college, and I was getting straight A's, and you could say, well, that's very impressive, Eric, and I knew nothing. I knew how to pass tests, but if you asked me questions about what I answered on tests two tests ago, I couldn't take the same test again. I knew how to study for the test, but I didn't know how to study for life. I knew nothing, and I was suddenly jolted with that. I remember hearing a man preach, and he got up and preached, and when he was preaching, he took this one scripture, and he spent an hour on one scripture. And I remember thinking, if you gave me that one scripture, I could talk for 15 seconds, and that would be reading it really slow. I have no idea where he got that from. His mind critically thought it, knew how to unpack ideas, truth. It had creative energy that was brought to the text. In other words, he had his own thoughts. He wasn't just borrowed thoughts. What did Spurgeon say on it? What did Tozier say on it? What did Whitfield say on it? Come on, could someone give me some feed here so I can just give a message? Is it just borrowed ideas? That's what test taking has become to us. We borrow ideas and then we give the right answer. And I want you to realize that will cripple your soul. God wants to help you understand the word of God. You must be groomed to think God thoughts. And he will utilize this frame known as the human life to change this world. But you cannot follow the pattern of this world to do it. So here I am, 19 years old, and I realize the deficiency, the deficit, literally, that has been created in my life academically. Everyone on the outside is patting me on the back going, look how well Eric is doing. But somehow inside of me, I realize I'm an idiot. How I recognize that, I'm not exactly sure. But I recognized it. And so I spent the next two years of my life relearning everything. I did. I learned how to write again. I learned grammar again. I started completely over when I was 19 through 21. How to critically think. So I ended up learning logic. I ended up studying history over again because I knew nothing about context of where I was, how we got here, and where we're going. Most of who I am today was shaped in those two years of going back to the most basic academic, most rudimentary elements of life and saying, I don't know how to think. I have a brain, but it doesn't work. And this is getting straight A's in college. Something was wrong. We need to learn how to wield what God has given us. We are pathetic in this generation. And I say, let's be pathetic no more. Whatever we need to do to become the vehicles and the instruments of grace in this world that God intended us to be, let's say, I'm in. Even if that means you need to go back. I had my sister reteaching me grammar. I had my sister teaching me how to write again. My writing was just a mess. It's sort of become a mess again. But uh, I literally learned how to rewrite uh, penmanship. Isn't that ridiculous? The least in our father's house. Listen to this story from the book of Judges. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. you'll notice that I emboldened that just sort of as a foundational statement here. All throughout the book of Judges, we see this. And the children did evil in the sight of the Lord. When When the people of God do evil, 
bad things end up happening in the world in which they live. And once again, we see that here. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And so it was when Israel had sown, in other words, had planted their crops, that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. And they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto Gaza. So now they planted their crops and then all these enemy forces come in. By the way, this is just how Christianity works. If you start to live in accordance with the pattern of the world instead of the pattern of God, the enemy has access to literally come in and devour your crop. No more fruit is being produced. You have a barren land. There is no life in it. It's exactly what happened to Israel here. And the children of the east, and even they came up against him, and they encamped against him and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto Gaza, and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. Remember when I said the dumbest generation ever? We have been impoverished because of the Midianites. I mean, literally ransacked. Our fields are barren. They have nothing. Our, literally, our, our harvest has been burnt. We don't have anything to draw from, to bring to the market and trade and say, no, we have substance. We have something here. We're stuck with our headphones on, with the beep in our pocket, with our addiction to Facebook. We are lost in our own little world when there's a dying world out there. We don't see it. We have to be awakened. I wouldn't mind if God came and crushed the entire technological system for one year so that we could get outside of it. That we could actually allow the blur to be removed and we could see once again. And there came, uh, and Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. What does impoverishment bring? A cry unto the Lord. If you've been impoverished for seven years, you start to feel it. For those of us, we have many students at Ellerslie that have recognized their impoverishment. They're like, I can't stand it anymore. Why do you think you were impoverished in the first place? Because God loves you. Because you were headstrong, you were rebellious. The only way to get your attention sometimes is to impoverish you, is to burn the fields, allow even the Midianites to come in and claim what belongs to God. And he says, because I love you, you must be awakened. And they cried unto the Lord and there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was an Oprah that pertaineth unto Joash, the Abiezrite and his son Gideon. Okay. Now you guys know what story this is. This is Gideon. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Remember, any crop is rare in Israel. Gideon has some. And he's threshing it in hiding so the Midianites wouldn't see it. To hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. See, now that doesn't really sound like uh, much of a statement yet. But when you realize how unlikely Gideon is to be the rescuer of his nation or to have such a title. The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. You start to chuckle at this story because the equivalent of God coming up to us and saying, hey, you're a mighty man of valor. You look at yourself and go, are you looking at the same person here? And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our father told us of, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. 
And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, Listen, this is our quote back. O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. Okay, so what's God doing? Here's here's my proposal. The most unlikely heroes, who are they? Us. So let the secular world do its evaluation. Let them determine that we are the most unfit to rise up and turn the world on its head. Let them come to those conclusions and let God, the God of the impossible, do what he loves to do. Pick the lowest in the Father's house. We're it. We're the most unlikely. We're the most unfit. We're the most unready. We're the most untrained. We're bibliophobes. How does that translate to a Christian? We're Bibleophobes. Most of us are afraid of good, solid doctrine. If I read too much of it, it'll hurt me. You need to spend more time just loving and dancing and doing those things. But if you get too close to the Bible, it might hurt you. We're actually afraid of this stuff. It's because our minds have not been trained. We don't read. We don't spend time wrestling with text. We want it dished out to a spoon feed me. Otherwise, I cannot handle it. Don't accept this lethargy in your soul any longer. How can we prepare for battle? We have a battle, and I've said this to you many times. We're not at a time of peace. We're at a time of war. This is serious stuff. So how do we prepare for battle? We are unfit and unready for battle, supposedly. 75% of our generation can't even enter the military. This has to change. So how do we get prepared for battle? For by wise counsel thou shalt make thy war. What this message is about is it's about this concept of counsel. Most of us are turning to something in our life to find satisfaction, to find information, to find solutions, real-world solutions to our problems. You're weak. You need entertainment. You're sick. You have issues. We all do. We all have issues. We're humans. This generation has more issues than maybe any other generation. We live in America, and we have issues. Try going to a third-world country. Start comparing your issues with theirs. Suddenly you realize, I don't know that I actually have issues. You have issues. It's called selfishness. For by wise counsel thou shalt make thy war. So there's a good answer to your question. You need wise counsel. So where do you go to find the wise counsel? This is what this message is about. We are turning to counselors other than God. The secret to growing strong in the grace of God is to turn to the counselor who I will introduce you to in just a second here. Where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. And so what we have a tendency to do when we see this is go, okay, I need to surround myself with counselors because I need to have safety. So, okay, Eric, I hear what you're saying. So who do I go to? Do I go to my peers? And do I go up to them and say, do you have the solution for me? You look intelligent. I've seen you praying outside. Do you have an answer for me? You go to the staff at Ellerslie. They seem intelligent. They, you know, they're staff. They must know something. Where are you turning? Who is your counselor? There's a lot of other options out there. And I'll go through a few in just a second. You have an issue. The world has an answer. You take any issue, you'll find that the world has an answer. Without question. It's just amazing 
how many businesses have cropped up because of human issues. There's an answer outside of God for everything. However, if you turn outside of God for your answers, you'll find that your problems will not go away because your problems stem from a deeper issue. And if that deeper issue isn't dealt with, you are a big issue all yourself. And you will be a problem in this world as opposed to a benefit. Without counsel, purposes are disappointed. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. We need a multitude of counselors, don't we? Who is our multitude of counselor? There is a human solution for everything. Let's just look through this list real quick. Here are just a few examples of human solutions for earthly problems. I'm not saying you're doing this, but I'm saying this is our mentality that we have been trained in. So maybe you don't think like this, and I praise God if you don't. However, just follow me on this. If you are short on money, find a loan shark or hawk something at your local pawn shop. That way you don't even need to deal with your Jehovah Jireh God, the great provider. If you're, if you're low on income, if your student loans are catching up with you, guess what? You can find an earthly solution to your problem. And I'm not saying it's bad to deal with banks and investments and things like that. I'm saying, where are you turning? Who is your counselor? Where do you turn when the challenges rise? If you're short on energy, take a Red Bull or a coffee break. After all, God can't possibly compete with caffeine. If you are short on happiness, turn on the, your cable TV and watch the comedy channel or find one of those happiness gurus. Obviously, God's not much of a happiness guru. I mean, look at the church, the big frown on their face. You don't, can't turn to God. I mean, the Bible's all serious stuff. Find something else out there. The world has a solution for you. If you're short on health, go to the doctor and quick. You don't need the great physician if you have Dr. Wilson right down the street. If you have an abundance of depression, try Prozac because it works and we are not totally sure that God does. If you have an abundance of anxiety, take a break. Maybe a trip to the Bahamas. Cut loose for a while. Get away from the stress. After all, a trip to God sounds like a week in the straitjacket of conviction. I get even more stressed just thinking about it. This is the mentality. I'm not saying you have adopted it. But I'm saying that we, when we suffer from any issue in this world, have a solution outside of God. If you have an abundance of problems, find a good shrink. Just don't turn to God. He doesn't want to hear about it. In fact, he's probably the one giving you all the problems. If you have an abundance of debt, get another credit card to supply a bit more breathing room. Or maybe take out a second on your house. Or if neither of those work, you could just go bankrupt. After all, you got yourself into this mess. Don't expect God to bail you out of it. We have a multitude of counselors. You need counsel? I've got just the place for you to go. It's not me. Listen. 66 to be exact, supplying us the mind of God. It's called the Bible. 66 books canonized with the divine right to rule and control the church of Jesus Christ. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. The word of God is the counsel to the church. This is what we heed. And if any man disagrees with what it says in the word of God, who's wrong? The word of God or the man? Here's my proposal to you. The man. Anyone who disagrees with God is wrong. If you're going to disagree with someone, I would choose it not. I would say, you know, if I'm going to give you some wise counsel, do not have it be God. 
who's going to be the one you disagree with. God's right. Everyone that disagrees is a liar. Yachts. That's the Hebrew word. It means to advise, consult, give counsel. It means counsel, just plain old counsel. Purpose, devise, and plan. When we hear the word counsel, oftentimes we think of, you know, one of those sort of like couch types of things that you sit in in a psych, uh, psychiatric ward. That wasn't what I was saying. In a psychologist's office. No, that even sounds right. A psychiatrist's office. There's my word. And you lay back and they go, tell me your problems. Okay? I'm laying back in a couch right now. That's why I look funny. And so when we think of counsel, we think of someone listening to us. And then they give us some thoughts and some notions about what we might be feeling and why because of this in our past and various things. I want you to realize, in the Bible, that's not what counsel is. Counsel is preparation for war. You are in a battle. And you need counsel. So what does a war counsel do? A war counsel surrounds a king. And they submit unto him. Here's what the enemy is doing. This is the enemy's uh, techniques. This is the enemy's uh, tendencies. This is what we have. This is, uh, these are our strengths. This is how they match against them. Here's what I would propose. War counsel is what the word in the Bible, yachts, actually is referring to. So you need counsel. That's right, you do. You have problems. You have an enemy that is laying siege to your soul. So what do you do? Brainstorm? You know, go on and Google? Uh, you know, what the enemy is known to do and what his tendencies are? What do you do? You go to your 66 counselors, which can be summed up into one, Almighty God. However, he counsels us through his 66. He surrounds us with a war council. And he says, listen to me. I have every answer you could possibly need for every possible situation in life. And they surround us. The Heavenly War Council. I had to change the name because council in that concept is usually C-O-U-N-C-I-L. So to change the word, to help you understand, that's exactly what this is. It's a Heavenly War Council. You need counseling. A lot of us are like, woe is me. Could someone just wrap their arm around me and just hold me? I want you to realize what you're needing right now is war counsel. Because the enemy is hitting you and you don't realize it. Rise up with the strength of Almighty God. Get a backbone and start realizing you're in a battle. Rise up with truth. Hit him. Draw out the sword of the spirit and slice at the enemy. You want to deal with your problems? Deal with them God's way. You try and deal with them in a human fashion, you'll fail. It will not actually solve your problem. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night season. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. He has given me the direction of how to deal with the battle and with the issues I am facing. Is that the statement of your soul? Galatians 1. What we're going to see here is a pattern. But when it pleased God, this is Paul speaking, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen. You have a calling. It's a, it's a large, grand calling. And that's to reveal the person of Jesus Christ on this earth. To be an image bearer that when this world sees you, they see Jesus. It's an extraordinary calling. It really is. Look what Paul does when he receives his commission from God. It says, immediately... I conferred not with flesh and blood. He did not turn immediately to men. He did not turn to the... And it's like, whoa, I just received a big call and what should I do with this? How am I supposed to pull this off? Immediately, 
I conferred not with flesh and blood. He did not turn to men. Very critical. Almost every single one of us has been trained to find our solution, our human problem in a human solution. And I want you to realize God's pattern is completely different. Human problem, God's solution. You know what salvation is? Human problem, God's solution. You know what Christianity is? Human problem, human growth, human maturity, human development, God's solution. God's the only one that can do it. You need to start turning to God instead of your humanity or the humanity of those around you. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. So here's... uh, And then after, well, sorry, this is continuation. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. Does that sound familiar to any of the Ellerslie students? But other of the the apostles saw I none, save James and the Lord's brother. Here's a quote from one of our Ellerslie students from, was it this week? Yeah, because we've only had one week. Even fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ can be an idol. Think about it. Paul spent three years in Arabia with God and then only 15 days with Peter. That's a good quote. I like it. That's why I used it. See, Peter, you have Peter in your midst. Who do you want to go to and talk to? Paul could go to Peter. I mean, we have the cornerstone of the church upon this rock. I mean, he's a, his name is Rock. I mean, this is the guy you want to go to. What does Paul do? Immediately, I conferred not with flesh and blood. He went to Arabia. He spent three years there, 15 days with Peter. It's an unbelievable statement. Is it bad to go to Peter? Absolutely not. However, what is our first turn? And this is what I want to build on today. If you are going to be an unlikely hero, to hold in contempt all the studies that have been done on this generation, if you want to stick it in their face and down their craw, I want you to realize you must take your counsel from Almighty God. And whenever you have an issue, you turn, not to flesh and blood, But to God, the secret to making your time here at Ellerslie work, you have an issue, you have a concern, you have a question. I don't care what it is. You start practicing this. You immediately turn to the word of God in scripture. You turn to God. You say, hey, God, I I need to understand this. Teach me how to rely on you. Because guess what? You'll leave this Ellerslie environment someday. And you won't have a whole batch of staff members around you, a whole bunch of students that might think like-mindedly with you. So what do you have? You have God. And you have to learn how to lean on him. This is your practice ground. So if you ever come to staff and you, you're like, oh, I need, I need some time with you. One of the most common things you'll hear from us is go spend time first with God. First turn, always to God. And guess what? Almost inevitably, your answer will be solved in that time. But it's uncomfortable for us. We're used to having things spoon-fed to us. We're not used to having to work for it. Well, you better start learning how to work for it as a Christian. God has laid it out in his word. And guess what? The gold nuggets aren't just sitting on the surface of it. You have to dig. You have to wrestle. You have to lay before God and say, God, I need to understand this. And what will he do? He will always give you understanding. The fact that you even have the question is a sign supernaturally that God is also going to give you the answer. I've lived by that principle my entire Christian life. Hmm. I have a question about scripture. Guess what? Satan's not giving me a question about that scripture that I would have a deeper understanding of it. This is coming from God. As a result, I know God will give me the answer. God is not afraid of your questions. He has nothing to hide. 
God is not trying to get you to look away from this one passage. Like, oh, great, if they see that, their whole Christianity is going down the toilet. Hey, look at it. Study it. He wants us to examine it. He wants us to apply questions to it. He wants us to look it over. He wants us to know every inch of it. This is our life. It's the treasure map which leads us to the treasure. If you don't know the treasure map, good luck trying to find the treasure. So here's the summation. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. Which if, any, if you're going to go to anyone, the apostles? The apostles! Forget the staff at Ellerslie. We got Peter over here. How many of you are going to Peter? Run into Peter right now. It's like, oh, well, I have a question. Peter's over here. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Allow God to take you into the Arabia season to tutor your soul. There is nothing wrong with talking to Peter. There's nothing wrong with the communion of the body of Christ and the fellowship of believers. It's wonderful. It's beautiful to be built up and edified in and amongst ourselves. But God must train you to not lean on the arm of men, but to lean on the strong right arm of God. So to Arabia we go. In time of need, the typical human responses are as follows. So you have a need. You're struggling with something. This is just inevitable. We as humans struggle. We're in the midst of hostile territory. The enemy wants to destroy us. We have issues. Okay, The fact that we have issues isn't our problem. It's what we do with our issues that makes it a problem. You ever heard the statement by Martin Luther? You can't keep the gulls from flying overhead, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. You're not going to be able to keep the issues from flying overhead but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair and ruining your existence. God will teach you how to rightly handle every situation you ever come to. Every one of them. So the typical human responses are as follows. Self is a very obvious turn for us. I mean, we're, even though we are the dumbest generation ever, we still think that we're pretty smart. And we can solve this issue Okay, now let's use the illustration of the metaphor of a flock of sheep, a shepherd. So the shepherd's over here. Flock of sheep right here. Wolves out here. Who's able to deal with the wolves? Okay, I know this is going to be fairly basic, but I want you to realize how startling this is to the typical Christian mind. To actually apply this into every dimension of their life. But we have shepherd, sheep, and wolves. So those sheep, say they gather together, and they say, look, we have a lot of strength if we gather together, if we unite. We could come against that wolf pack, don't you think? Okay, if any of us know how these things work, we, even if there's a million sheep, sheep are not built to fight. They're just terrible at it, okay? They would just, I mean, even if it's five wolves against a million sheep, who would you bet on? Isn't that a funny thought? Five Wolves against a million sheep, and most of us would still bet on the wolves. It would just take them a little more time. You see, wolves beat sheep. You have one solution here, and it's very obvious. Any problem that this sheep has, what should he do? He should turn to the shepherd. Follow me on this. I know it sounds very basic the way I'm describing it, but I want you to realize we do the opposite on a daily basis. We have an issue here, and we're in the flock, and what do we do? Wolves surrounding us. These wolves are eating off our hooves, biting off our ears, 
We're miserable. We're bleeding. And so what do we do? We resolve within that that wolf isn't going to get me next time. No way, wolf. You won't get me next time. Well, that's not the solution for that little sheep. The little sheep cannot change the outcome next time. That sheep will still be dinner for the wolf next time unless he learns the secret of turning to the shepherd. I'll give you the secret right here. This is going to sound, again, very easy, but I want you to realize this will revolutionize your Christian walk. Shepherd. Shadow of the almighty shepherd. Ankle within the shadow. If you are within that shadow of the almighty shepherd, nuzzle yourself against his leg. Make sure you feel that you're against him. Abide in that presence. And guess what? That wolf won't come near you. That wolf can't harm you. Why? Because of your strength? Because of your intellect? Because of your prowess and muscular power? Because of the shepherd's strength. You get close to the shepherd and the wolf has no power and no authority against you. That's the secret of sheep. Okay? So, self. Should the sheep brainstorm a human solution? Most of us don't turn to God until our human solutions have failed. And then we go, you know what? We probably should pray. How about this? The moment you have an issue, let's pray. We immediately turn to the shepherd. It's an immediate first turn. Okay, what are some of our other things that we do? Flesh. This is a really funny one if you think about it. The wolves are eating away at your hoofs, your ears, you know, your back uh, hind leg. You know, you're not looking too good. You're bleeding all over the place, and you're not, you're not a, a good-looking sheep anymore, okay? Covered in blood and filth. Is this the time to go play a video game? Get lost in the video world. How about this? Take, a, you know, one of those uh, vodka, a bottle of vodka, and chug it. It'll numb the pain for you, little sheep. It'll really help. Is it actually helping you with your problem? It's numbing the problem for the time being. Meanwhile, while you're chugging it, guess what the wolves are doing? Gnawing on your left hind leg. And you can't feel it. The fact that you are oblivious to it because you're drugged and in the flesh, sitting there comatose in a movie theater, does not mean the enemy isn't actually making even greater advances on your soul. Flesh isn't helping you. Again, instead of someone handing you a solution, a flesh solution for your problem when you're a poor little sheep being devoured by the wolves, what should you do? Migrate. Even with ear bit off, right hoof missing, right back hind leg, totally eaten away, what should you do? Hobble over to the shepherd and say, I need a protector. He is your first turn, always. Physicians, Medication. I can't tell you how many people in this generation turn to medication as a first turn. I'm not even against medication. I'm not against it. I'm saying as a first turn, instead of turning to Jesus, we turn to our medicine cabinet. We almost inevitably will not turn to Jesus unless our medication fails. And I want you to know that's an improper progress of the human soul. When you have an issue, you do not turn to a medicine cabinet. You turn to Jesus Christ. If he says, hey... I've given you a medicine cabinet. That's his business. But the point is, we first turn to Jesus, always. He is our physician. What's the good of having a physician named Jesus Christ if we don't use him in the time when a physician is needed? Parents, we call the word dependence. 
It's a hard thing because parents, you know, I'm a parent and I want my kids to be well taken care of. However, my goal in my children's lives is not to grow them up that they always need to come to me. My goal is not to train them to become interlocked and interdependent with me that they can do nothing outside of me. Can't wash their own clothes. Some of you at Ellers are like, boy, how do you do this? Uh, Here, you know, food issues. I remember when I was in college, I mean, there were certain things. I remember correcting my own papers, editing my papers. That's That's a very difficult thing without my mom, who was an English teacher. And suddenly I started getting marked up for grammatical errors. I never got marked up in high school. I had a mom. Suddenly, Eric needs to buck up. Eric needs to grow up. I remember one of my big decisions in life. I was engaged to Leslie, and my dad always bought me clothes all growing up. You know, and he, he's, he's a clothes horse, too. And so he always had, you know, always wanted me to have my suits. Here's this, you know. He, and he would get me measured. Or had this. Or I always looked good, right? Well, I didn't have any money. But I'm engaged now. And my dad says, why don't I take you out? And I'll get you set up with a whole wardrobe uh, for when you get married. My big moment in life. No, Dad. I'm going to do it on my own this time. How much money do you have? I don't have any. If I have to stitch them together, I'm going to do it. We're going to learn how to stand alone. I'm going to be a man in this generation. I do not want to just constantly be dependent. You see, we oftentimes maintain a dependency in an unhealthy way. Because growing up and having parents take care of us, that's normal. But we also need to grow up unto a full maturity which begins to lean on the shepherd in every situation. Darkness. Consult a counterfeit power. Okay, now I'm not saying that any of you do this. But you don't want to know how many people have issues and literally go to the powers of darkness to solve them? The old fortune teller solution... Oh, could you just give me some insight into what I'm dealing with here? You know how ridiculous this is? Just imagine, you have your flock of sheep, here's the shepherd. So obvious where the answer is against the wolves. But instead, the sheep are talking to you and going, you know what, there's this one wolf who actually will come in and he'll tell you what the wolves are going to do to you next. You know, and so if if you pay him, you know, all that you have, he'll, he'll give you some more information about how the wolves are going to devastate your life in the future, too. Why would you ever listen to a wolf about what the wolves do? The wolf has an agenda, and he wants to eat you for dinner. You do not go to him for counsel. You do not turn to him. You turn to the shepherd. This is so obvious, I know. But I want you to revolutionize your soul on this point and realize there is only one first turn. Do not turn to the sheep. Do not turn to the wolves, turn to the shepherd. For I beheld and there was no man, even among them, and there was no counselor that when I asked of them could answer a word. You take all of us and measure us before the bright lights of God. And if God were to say, so you call yourselves my counselors. Can you answer me this? Do you remember when he took Job into the corner? And said, who created the earth? And he went through that long litany, denouncing Job's intelligence. Do you actually think that you know? Do you actually think that you are competent to represent the mind, the full mind of God? You know, the amazing thing about Christianity is we are called to represent the full mind of God, but not in our own opinion. Not in our own experience. We are called to represent the mind of God because it has been revealed to us in and through His Word, which is the mind of God. 
We know his word. We lean on his word. We abide in the shadow of the shepherd in his word. And as a result, we do have answers to give to people. But once again, it is not us. It is him. The entire movement of soul for every one of us as Christians, when any need is around us, is we go to the shepherd. Even when we're saying the scriptures, we're saying to the shepherd, this is his opinion. This is what will help you. He's the only one that can rescue you. I can't do diddly squat for you other than point you to the shepherd. We, could, we can't help people into heaven. We can't somehow make their right hoof grow back. We have no power. He does. He has the healing power. He has the, the salvation work. He has the strength in his right arm to rescue us. And only he does. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You have time of need? Where are you going to find the help? Well, there's grace to help. And where is it found? In the throne of grace. How do you get to the throne of grace? In Jesus. He's the only way to the Father. The only way to that throne is Jesus. So you need help in time of need. Well, there's grace to help in time of need. But that grace is in the throne of grace. And the only way to get to that throne of grace, as detailed in your 66 counselors, is in Jesus Christ. So where are you turning again? Where are you turning in your time of need? Are you going to the throne of grace? Are you even able to access the throne of grace? Do you know Jesus? Because he's the only one who can get you there. So as a fellow sheep, if we have a sheep that comes up to us and says, woe is me, my life is miserable right now, I have needs. What do we do? We point them to the throne of grace. We point them to the shadow of the Almighty. We say, let me show you how to get to him. What we do, our job is to take people and lead them to the ankle of our shepherd. That's our job. That's our job. Not to create a dependence. Most of us are like, I really want to be, to feel needed. And so people come to us and we hug them and we hold them. And then they say to us, thank you. No one's done that for me. I just feel so weak. And we hug them stronger. And then the next time they have need, just always know you can come to me. Always know you can come to me. And there creates this little dependency. And you feel good about it. They feel good about it. And guess what? The shepherd's being robbed of his sheep. Because you are usurping a position that belongs to the shepherd. Yes, you are the hands and the feet of the shepherd. And yes, there is a time to hug. And yes, there is a time to hold. And yes, there is a time to speak words of encouragement. But you must realize, you help that soul by leading them into the shadow of the shepherd. So if your hug is leading them into the shadow and under your wing, instead of under his wing, something's wrong with that hug. Test your hug. Test your heart. Why are you doing what you're doing? Are you looking to glorify Jesus or to fulfill and satisfy self? Ministry must never be done out of the desire to satisfy self. The first turn. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, but I went into Arabia. First turn. Paul, called of God, commissioned of God. First turn to Arabia. He went to God. To be alone with God. There is no God else beside me. A just God and a savior. There is none beside me. Says God by the way. Look unto me. And be ye saved. Look unto me. And be ye saved. 
all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. That would be a great quote for some of our souls. He is God and there is none else. He is God and I am not he. We are not God. If we do think that, we really are the dumbest generation ever. He is God and there is no other. You want to prove a smart generation? Start quoting that. That's the ultimate in intelligence right there. And Asa in the 30 and 9th year of his reign was diseased in his feet. Uh Uh-oh. He has a disease in his feet. What should he do? Until his disease was exceeding great. What should he do? What should Asa do? Yet in his disease he sought not the Lord, but to the physicians. And Asa slept with his fathers and died in the one and fortieth year of his reign. What a great conclusion to a life. This, This man actually lived a good life. And then that's how he finished. May that not be the epitaph on our life. That we got sick somewhere along, whether it's in the soul or in the body, it doesn't matter, or in the mind. And we seek not the Lord, but we seek a human solution instead. And all it says is, and Asa died. That's the conclusion. And Asa died. And so will we. You want life? Life comes by seeking the Lord. The parakletos. It means, in the Greek, the advocate, the intercessor, the rescuer, the helper, the counselor, the comfort bringer. Who's the parakletos? Now here at Elegy, you'll notice that we're training you to represent that, to be the advocate for the weak, the lonely, the lost, the dying, the oppressed, the enslaved, the trafficked. The intercessor, the one that stands in the way and takes the hit for the weak. The rescuer, the helper, the counselor, the comfort bringer. This is a Christian, right? However, I want you to first and foremost realize something. The parakletos is God. If we get this mixed up and we think that we are capital P parakletos, the church stops working. Our ministry stagnates. We cannot truly help souls that way. But if we allow him to be capital P parakletos, Christianity works. John 14 says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, parakletos, that he may abide with you forever. See, Jesus is leaving. And the disciples are like, oh no, what are we going to do without you? You're our helper, you're our advocate, you're our intercessor. We only are strong because you're here. I mean, it's like being at the ankle of the shepherd, and the shepherd saying, yeah, I'm going away. Suddenly the wolves are surrounding you. Uh, Jesus, I think we need a, something here other than this model. This is not a good idea. Because we have wolves that are surrounding us. He says, look, where I'm going, you can't yet go. But I'm going to send you a parakletos. Another parakletos is coming. That he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the helper, the parakletos, the counselor, the advocate, the intercessor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. You want a counselor? There's your counselor. What's his counselor going to do? He is going to reveal all the things that Jesus wants you to know. Everything that you will need for help, for advocacy, for intercession. He ever lives to make intercession for you. And what has he provided for you to enable you in this battle against the wolves? Himself. 
He's given you himself. Then he, then he answered and spoke unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Not by any human intervention, not by human philosophy, not by human effort, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So I've added something to this, and we've just sort of redone it so you can see something and let it stand out. Not by might, nor by power. We could say not by human might, not by human power, not by human initiative, not by human solution, but by my parakletos, says the Lord of hosts. You want something done in your soul. It's not going to be your grit, your determination, your willpower that will accomplish it. And you could be one powerful machine testifying of the grandeur of what humanity can do outside of God. It will be insufficient. But there is a solution for your soul, and that is God Almighty. He is your helper. He is your advocate. He is your intercessor. He is your counselor. You turn to him. He will show you how to properly interrelate with the body of Christ around you. To be a life giver. To be a servant. And even when to come to them and say, look, I've been searching the scriptures on this and I'd like your perspective and your input on this. There is a place for human counsel. But you'll notice I've downplayed that greatly today. Because I want us to remember first turn is always to Jesus Christ, to the ankle of the shepherd, and to those 66 counselors that he's entrusted to us. Always. The danger of the special situation. One of the reasons why we don't turn to the word of God is because we feel we've been duped with the notion that we have a special circumstance. Well, yeah, I can understand why all of them need to turn first to Jesus Christ, but in my situation, there are no, there's nothing in the Bible about it. Or, you know, I have a special medical circumstance that actually precludes me from going to God. This is a special situation because I was abused when I was little. I have, I'm bipolar, and as a result, I need to do this. If I don't take this medicine, then my life falls apart. Is there a special circumstance? Is there? Because our generation has a thousand, if not a million, special circumstances all labeled with the title. The world has taken humanity and divided it up into all these little columns and said, well, if you're this, then you go here. If you're this, you go here. If you're this, you go here. If you're, oh, and this, oh, that's way over there. God divides it up onto one column. Well, maybe we should say two. Those that are bound in sin and those that are freed from sin. Guess what? If you're living in sin, if the flesh controls you, that's a column. And then when you're set free and you enter into Jesus Christ, that's a column. Light, darkness. Your problem is sin. There is no special situation. I know I could offend a whole bunch of people with that one. Well, I'd like you to wrestle with it. Because if you recognize that it's all sin, guess what? It simplifies life. Because where do you turn? To Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that the fact that you've been abused when you were little was your sin. I'm saying it's still a consequence of a sinful world. And you're responsible in your soul to know how to properly handle that. And guess what? That's very difficult outside of Jesus. Let me say it this way. It's impossible outside of Jesus. You cannot properly forgive without Jesus Christ. You cannot properly deal with the resentment and the bitterness that is processed through your body and grown like a root system outside of Jesus Christ. You can't. There's only one solution for your sin and those that have been sinful even towards you. There's only one healing remedy. There's only one balm of Gilead. And that is Jesus Christ. 
We complicate this, we miss the gospel. We bring it down to the simplicity that God has enunciated in his scripture. And we say, we are all needful. All of us. No special circumstances here. We all need the feet of Jesus. That's the solution for every single one of us. And there is nothing that is not dealt with in the word of God. Doesn't have to say bipolar in the Bible, by the way. Bipolar is a man's term. Let God deal with the root issues. If you have a blubber ring jiggling around your middle, the solution for you is not liposuction. There might be something that is even leading to that blubber ring, whether it be spiritual or physical. If you don't deal with the root issues, guess what? It comes right back. If you try liposuction spiritually, you will not be solved with the problem in your soul. You must turn to Jesus Christ. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. You want to be a minister of the gospel. You must learn this. Simon wanted to be a minister of the gospel. What's wrong with that? His heart was not right. He wanted it for his own glory. He wanted the position of wielding the strength and the power of God and the solution of God to those around him so that people would be drawn to himself. Can I buy it with money? No, you can't buy it with money. You buy it by giving up your life. That's how you get it. You forsake all. You get it by paying everything. You give up your life. Fall into his shadow. He diminishes you where it's no longer about you. You don't care if anyone sees you. If anyone knows you. The reason we're in ministry is because we love him. Because we're moved by his love in us. And he says, you see that life? I love it. He says, well, I love it too, God. And we serve them with our life. Because we love him. Because he has solved the riddles of our soul. He is our everything. Is Jesus your everything? Because if he is, you minister correctly. If he is just a tag on, an add on, an alternative to this solution or maybe a possibility. In other words, you have all your solutions and one of them in your medicine cabinet is a bottle called Jesus Christ. And if these things don't work, you'll chug a few of those pills. Is that who Jesus Christ is to you? Empty your cabinet. Have one thing in it. Open it every time it says Jesus. Next time, more of Jesus. Next time, yeah, still Jesus. You have one thing. You turn to Jesus Christ. He is your solution. Yes, this world is complicated. We live in a very complicated culture, which is elaborately conceived of great solutions to your soul outside of Jesus Christ. And so it's quite something when I stand up and I start pushing at that. I'm not against human counselors. I'm not against even medication. I'm against us turning to that instead of turning to Jesus. God can lead you to do whatever he wants. That's his business. How you handle your finances, my first order of business is as a pastor to tell you, you must start by turning to Jesus Christ. He may need to completely reorder the way you live your life. And first of all, he'll start with the flesh. Because if you're living after fleshly tendencies, your finances will go in the tank. You'll become deceitful. You'll become a liar and a cheat in your books. You'll look at the IRS as the ultimate threat because they're trying to take from you. However, 
if you allow the flesh out of the way and you say, you know what? This is about Jesus Christ. And I want to live this life with a reputation that if, if ever inspected would demonstrate the nature of Jesus Christ himself. May my books be examined. May every penny that we spend as Christians be able to be held up and said, I spent it well. Well, every single one of us in here would probably be proved frauds with that standard I just set up. I mean, frauds. Please, Eric, don't have anyone examine my books. However, let's begin to turn to Jesus Christ. Instead of covering our inadequacies, instead of building a whole elaborate system of defense around them, may God bring us to the point where every single one of us can walk in the light and say, yeah, I've lived fairly pathetically in the past. But now, moving forward, I turn to God in every situation. And the world out there can look at you and say, so that's what a Christian looks like. In every situation, every, without exception, we always have our first turn be Jesus Christ. Where does the government lie? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. You have a difficult life to live. Do you know that you have a government? It's called self-government. You have a government for your body. Someone's in charge of it. Someone's responsible for it. On whose shoulders does that government lie? On his on whose shoulders does your family's government lie? On his. On whose shoulders does the church government lie? On his. On whose shoulders do the nations of the earth and their governments lie? On his. We must let him have it. It's his government. We yield it. And we say, you take care of this operation. Starting with here, my life, my marriage, my family, the church of Jesus Christ, And all the nations must come under the ruling domain of Jesus Christ. And his name shall be called Wonderful. Listen to this. Counselor. The Mighty God. The Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. Where are you turning? You turn unto the Counselor. You turn unto the one who can hold the government of your life. Mini Parakletos. Okay, now I've scared you into never giving counsel to anyone. It's not necessarily my end goal. However, I want you to feel the gravity of how this works. Your entire spiritual disposition is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. I don't know if I ever said this to you guys. It would have had to be in this last week. But my sister once gave me the template for ministry. She said, Eric, when you are done speaking to someone about Jesus, technically... When they leave your presence, they should not be thinking about you. But in their mind, they should be thinking, Jesus, 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 more Jesus, wow, Jesus. And they may not even remember your name. That's ministry. Jesus, 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 wow, Jesus, more Jesus, please. May I have more of that Jesus. That needs to be the effect of our counsel, of our work as a parakletos. Because you know that you are supposed to be a parakletos? You're supposed to be an advocate for the weak the dying, the lonely, the oppressed. You're supposed to be an intercessor. You're supposed to be a counselor and a helper. You're supposed to be ever ready to supply the strength that God has given you to those around you. But when you are done with your ministry, what is on their mind and their lips and their heart? Jesus, 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 more Jesus. Wow, Jesus. That's ministry. This is not about you. You cannot point your finger to anything but Jesus. If your finger in ministry is saying, and do you see how I helped you? 
Do you see how wise I am? Do you see how kind and compassionate I am? Do you see this? There's no difference between you and Simon, the one who wanted to purchase the Holy Spirit. He wanted ministry, but on his terms for his glory. Our terms are Jesus Christ for him and him alone. Even if we become obscure and nothing in this world, if he becomes everything, our life works. Our life is as it should be. Listen to 1 Thessalonians. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort, which means to encourage and console the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. It's the work of a paracletos. You know, God isn't just saying, get out of the way. Hey, church, off to the side. This is my business. What he says is, my business is your business. And we must understand how the business works. It all heads back to him. But we are his hands and his feet in this world. So therefore, we must do the work of Jesus. Whatever he's doing is what we must be doing. If he's leaning down and washing the the tears away from a child that's crying, guess what? That's what our hand is doing. We are literally following the movement of God. And we are animating his behavior on earth. We are his body. But when we're doing it, the thought in their heart and their mind is Jesus. Jesus. More Jesus. Wow. Jesus. May our names be forgotten if necessary. There's nothing wrong with having people know your name, by the way. Because relationship is another key dimension in the kingdom of heaven. But the key is, are you leading them to Jesus or to you? Effective ministry is always unto Jesus. For his eyes are upon the ways of man. This is in Job. You'll see it's a collection of scriptures from Job. And he sees all his goings. There is no darkness, no shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. He strikes them as wicked men in the open sight of others because they turned back from him and would not consider any of his ways. God has ways. God has a way, the way. What is it? Jesus. And evil men do not consider his way. They go their own way. They're called wicked. So that they cause the cry of the poor to come unto him. And he hears the cry of the afflicted. This is a very interesting scripture. The cry of the afflicted is not supposed to bypass us and be ignored by us and reach the throne of heaven. Now this is, obviously God hears every cry. But the point is, the reason he's describing it is he's causing, so that they cause the cry of the poor to come unto him. That means the ones that are advocates, the ones that are intercessors, that are supposed to be, were not hearing it. And so as a result, it bypassed them and came to God. We are supposed to be the mini paracletoses. That the cry of the poor reaches our ears. And as a result, we're able to respond. We do not put God in the position of looking to and fro throughout the earth for someone who would function as a mini paracletos in this world. Where are they? Here we are, Lord Jesus. We hear it and we obey. Pour out our lives even unto death if necessary that you would raise up a name for yourself in this generation. We are mini paracletoses. Mini. Let's make sure we remember that. Mini. Okay, do you guys remember how I started? The most unlikely heroes. Remember I was making you feel bad? You're part of the dumbest generation ever? Now that's the secular take on us. I would like us to turn that on its face. I would like 
us to rise up and say, God, my background may be faulty. It may not be, you know, have all the holes filled in. Something may not be complete in my education. Sure. Yes, and I've been scared of books my entire life. And as a result, I am quite scared of the Bible. I will admit it. And yes, I've spent most of my life in front of a screen. Yes, there's, there's problems here. I've not shown loyalty even unto my parents, let alone unto your word, unto your leadership in my life. That needs to change now. Take this wreck and shape it into a picture of your glory. Jesus Christ was born in a stable. And he did that on purpose. As a testimony to all of us that he would take stables that stink and he would cause them to be his birthplace. And as a result, he would transform them into his castles of glory. Yes, you may be feeble. Yes, you may be weak. You may be like Gideon, the least in his father's house, the least of the tribes. God should ignore us. Absolutely. That's a given. But for some reason, he's noticing us. And he's saying, I'd like to use you. Would you allow me to take your life and turn it into a picture of triumph? You better allow a growl of God to enter your soul, to rise up and say, no more of this lethargy. No more of this ineptitude. I am not going to blame my weaknesses and my ignorances on the culture I grew up in or on my parents or on my educational background. I am the raw material of God and he can do with me whatever he sees fit. And suddenly we have the formation of a hero. You don't have to be brilliant. Who cares about your IQ? Let God's IQ be your IQ. You have 66 books of his IQ. He's one smart guy and he's given you all his smarts. Isn't that an incredible thought? All of them just laid bare for you. And then he'll even be the helper when you look at the scripture to help you understand it. You have everything you need, everything for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.